or you know put in time to to be a team player so i love that the, the other two things that stick out to me from what you're saying is that and i think especially with folks who who know that they're good who you know are at operating at elite levels might have more of a danger of you know of the ego getting the best of them those types of folks tend to be competitive and so channeling that competitiveness into you know if, if you're competitive and winning is going to mean upgrading your strategy then you will be more willing to change because that's that's the game you're now playing welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part five of our Intellectual Humility mini-series with Shane Snow, and, and today's kind of a special episode. Um, we've got on Al Buford, who has been on the show recently, and I'm kind of excited for this to happen. So Shane, do you want to talk about uh, a little bit what you had in mind here for episode five? Absolutely. So I can't think of a category that is higher stakes when it comes to leadership, when it comes to teamwork, than, than the military, than special forces. Really high risk, highly intense missions, and, and where you know, small mistakes can lead to large consequences you know, and, and even death. And it's not intuitive to think that those kinds of environments that you know, elite military units where you have you know, guys who know that they are the best at what they do, it's not intuitive to think of that as a place where you find lessons in humility. And yet over and over again, I have heard from folks talking about everything from, you know, uh, elite army units to elite Navy units to, you know, the folks who got bin Laden, that over and over again, you hear these stories about where humility and where knowing what you don't know and being willing to adapt and be told that you're wrong without taking it personal actually comes into play and becomes crucially important. And so that's why I was really excited uh, after listening to some of Al's episodes with you, Jess, you know, on the podcast, talking about his lessons from elite military units and from the Rangers in the army to his work today and, you know, in his, his business where things are, are nearly as intense out there in the business world as, uh, as you can imagine them getting in business. And so I'm really excited to talk about some of the things that, that have to do with this idea of intellectual humility, which, you know, Jess and I have been exploring over a few episodes. And really, it's about this idea of knowing what you don't know and knowing that you need to change and, and that it's not about you when it's about the mission. So the first thing that I would love to ask you has to do with something that I heard you say on a, a previous episode that I want to dig into a little bit more, Al. Uh, you talked with Jess about, uh, I forget the exact scenario you were talking about, but about taking time to not get angry, to get not angry when you are angry before making crucial decisions. And, and in another episode, you, you talked about having to be able to assess risk impartially. So I'm curious, how do you depersonalize decisions and conversations about things that, that are so important that you do get angry, that you do have strong feelings, that you know they're important, so you you feel strongly, and yet the mission or the, the business or the scenario is such that you really do need to make it not personal. Can you talk to us about how a person can get better at recognizing when things are personal and how do you make them not personal when, when the stakes are really high? Sure. Depersonalizing, for me, it's a matter of focusing on the process and teaching everyone else to focus on the process in the company and not on the people as much as possible. So 
anytime something isn't happening according to plan, it usually is a breakdown in the process. And so like literally, for example, paying people accurately and on time with a lot of moving parts and a lot of different kinds of projects, you know, if that, it, it could be moving like clockwork on one project, but for some reason it's not on the other. Well, there's a process breakdown. So you get all the right people in the room and literally make a flow chart about the process. And this is what's happening. Okay, well, what, how does it need to happen? And so then you, you know, refine that process and then run it, measure it, and do, do your root cause analysis and put in a corrective action. So that's basic quality management stuff. But there are, once, once you do all those things and you've got a good process and then all of a sudden it stops working, well, now it's probably a people issue and you got to determine there's two kinds of people issues uh, in my book. There's the, the can't do and there's the won't do. And you have to determine what is the situation? Is this a situation where the person can't do the task that's required to support their part of the process because maybe they're, they need some training or they need a piece of equipment or they need a, access to a system or some kind of an authority? And then once they have that, they can do it? Or is they have all those things and it's a won't do situation. And that's a very different problem to deal with. And you, you deal with that in a different way. You know, uh, sometimes that requires giving them the opportunity to excel elsewhere. <laughs> so it, it sounds like what you're saying is that you default to the assumption that it's not about people not wanting to do the job or not being capable of, of it. You default to an assumption that it's the process. And then by doing that, it allows you to have the conversation that if it ends up being, actually, this is a people issue, you've given them so much charity by not assuming that it's their problem that you can actually sort things out a little bit better. And you know, sometimes it is about uh, someone not wanting to do things and you deal with that, but but you're not starting from that place. Is that what, what you're saying? Exactly. And if you're doing a good job selecting people who are, you know, they want to be a part of a great team and they want to be a part of an important mission and they, they're selfless, and, you know, they're committed to the group goals and all that. I mean, it's easy to get, it's easy to, 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 to understand or to, to focus on the process and assume that they're doing their best. And for me, kind of the last thing, to go and investigate is, is the won't do part. That's sort of the last part of that process. And so is there, I'm curious, is there a valid set of uh, like the won't do as a leader? You know, I, I think it's easy to say, well, if they won't do it, then they shouldn't be on the team. But is that ever an opportunity for you as a leader to say, maybe we shouldn't do this if someone has a, a good reason to won't do? Well, if the organization's committed to the goal, and somebody won't do their part. Like, for example, I remember in the early days of Triple Canopy, that was the first company I was a part of right out of the Army. It was a startup that ended up, the first year was 100, 100 million. And the, the I think by the end of the fourth or fifth year, they were over 450 million. Thousand people in Iraq in like within about a year. So it was a massively, the, the growth rate was, it was amazing. And it was a great learning lab for me because I was right out of the Army and right out of my education in organization development. So being in a startup that grew that fast, I learned, we learned a lot and I learned a lot about business. There was a young lady who really had a moral issue with the fact that we were civilians and we had guns, right? And we were overseas. And so she worked as a temp for a while and we made her an offer to bring her on to be a part of the company because she was doing a good job. But she just came to the conclusion that she just couldn't get behind that that whole idea and so she she didn't take the job she wouldn't she wouldn't she wouldn't move forward and it was just a moral thing for her it's almost like being a conscientious objector right but 
you know, the reality is, is you know, it, it had to do with her reading things about, quote unquote, mercenaries. And the reality is, is the government's hiring security guards in that case. It's like going to the mall or going to a nuclear facility where you've got civilians who are the security guards. It just happens to be on an overseas military base where they'd rather have the soldiers out fighting. So how do you how do you not take something like that personally as a leader? Say this is someone that you, you know, you really want on the team and, and you know, you're being rejected or maybe a, a higher stakes thing. You know, if something happens, something goes not according to plan and you're upset. How do you depersonalize within yourself that kind of situation? Well, I mean, it's not personal at all, because that's just a value. Of, it's like respecting someone's religion and it's not your religion. You know, it's their own set of values and they're doing it for, for the right reason for themselves. And, and I would never fault anybody for that. That's great. I mean, it, it sounds like the kind of thing that, uh, that certainly happens in training, I would assume in the military and, and, you know, I think in good management training as well to, to respect other people's decisions as being not about you. So, so the, the next thing that I would love to ask you about is I've heard about this process that Army Rangers and elite military units like the Army Special Mission Unit tend to do after an operation is over, whether successful or less successful. Can you talk about the post-mortem process that happens when you're debriefing or evaluating what happened in a mission? And then, you know, specifically what, with your experience in the, in the military, and then, and then perhaps we can talk about applying the same thing to, uh, to business as well. Sure. So after action review is what most folks in the, in the Army call it. Some folks call it a hot wash. And basically, the whole, the whole point is continual improvement and to assess what we just did in a very fair and objective way and look for areas where we can improve upon what we just did. And if there were any, any, any mistakes with respect to our effectiveness or efficiency, how, you know, how do we go back and fix those? And so whoever's running that session just needs to be able to create kind of a climate of safety where everybody understands, you know, we're all here for the same reason. We're all trying to accomplish the same thing. And we're going to, so much of it is process focused. It's a sequence of events. And we're going to talk through that sequence of events and what occurred or didn't happen. And we want to, you know, get everybody to talk about sustains and improves. And if you get people throwing out sustains, these are things we did well. Well, then that makes it okay to throw out a couple of things that didn't go so well, as opposed to we're just all standing around throwing rocks at each other. So because there's the formality to it, it makes it okay to to dig into the hard stuff. Can you paint the the picture of what that kind of hot wash scene looks like? Do you, do you sit down at base camp? Like, what, where does this usually take place? So on an airfield where you just landed and you're in a hangar and everybody's standing around a big whiteboard and, uh, you know, they're all sweaty and dirty and tired and, you know, lay down your gear and get some snacks or whatever. And now let's stand around this thing where there's some, some water and, and talk about what we just did. And, you know, it could be something like, you know, the whole thing got delayed an hour because a private had a misfire with a charge on a fence. And you had to stop the whole event because it takes, uh, you got to wait 30 minutes to clear a non-electric firing system misfire, as opposed to if you'd rehearsed with those firing systems a few times, you wouldn't have had that problem. That's a real story. That really happened. Wow. In training. Yeah. And so the whole thing with mortars and machine guns and helicopters and AC-130 gunships, all every, everything, it's like a symphony of all these things moving in a sequence. And this one private messes the whole sequence up because he failed to pull his M60 fuse igniter properly. And, and so while it's fresh, you basically whiteboard that out and, and you say, this is the part of the process where we need to improve. 
where someone didn't do the job right. And next time, this is what we're going to do to fix it. And uh, okay. Yeah. And also spread that out to your sister elements who are about to go through the same exercise so they don't make the same mistake when they go through. And and how how do you deal with, do, do folks get upset during this process? How do you deal with, you know, with the, the emotions that might come up as uh, as you're called out for, you know, delaying the whole mission by an hour or, or you know, maybe potentially other more catastrophic mistakes? You, usually it's not, it's not that folks get upset. It's that they're embarrassed because they let their teammates down. It's usually more of that. The, the worst, you know, everything you do as a member of a, of an organization like that, your fitness, your skills, you know, shoot, move and communicate. All of those things are about living up to everyone else's expectations on the team and, and doing your part and not seeing as someone who can't keep up can't carry their can't carry their equipment mm-hmm. you know you don't want to be the guy who's who's fallen back and somebody else has got to take your ruck and carry it for you because you're, you're you're starting to become a heat casualty you know so it's really more about about that than it is about uh, somebody getting upset getting angry because somebody called them out well and that seems to be a function of just so much emphasis on this is about the mission and the team you, you don't have your own personal motives beyond that in, in that kind of situation, which I think might be slightly different than in some business scenarios where you're maybe worried about your promotion or you're worried about the side project or relationships, but in the, the team focus is so strong when yeah. it's a, a mission like that. Well, I mean, to use the sports analogy, it's the difference between having a team where everybody works together like a well-oiled machine, or you've got the one star player who's out there making all the big teams and it's it's the show and it's about him. You know, it's it's just the difference between those two, two kind of things. You know, Al, I think about all the years I've heard about these. One question I've never asked is how long they usually last. You know, let's say you're, you know, you're in theater and you guys get back from a, a major operation and everybody is sweaty and it's probably still the middle of the night. How, how long is a typical hot wash for AAR? Between 20 minutes and an hour usually. And it's right after you're not giving it a day to, to think on it. You're doing it while it's fresh. Right now. And and sometimes it's you do the hot wash and then you load back up and go do it again. Like whatever the thing is you're practicing. So have you applied this or seen this applied well, this idea of the hot wash in your, your company or, you know, in, in folks that you work with outside of the military? Any lessons that you could share? Yeah, absolutely. So every time our guys come back from a trip, it happens. We, we get guys back on a weekly basis. And uh, immediately, as soon as as soon as they get off the plane, I'm standing right there. What do we need to work on to make your next trip better? You know, uh, what what do we need to work on to 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 be able to better take care of our customers' needs? And I mean, we take notes on it and we fix it. Anything that we have the ability to fix. And so it's everything from leader selection, leader training, focus on culture, mission focus, and respect is, is like it's the thing we talk about. It's the thing I talk about more than anything. And pieces of equipment that they need, you know, we have a really good support staff for our folks and they know that we've done the work and they know that we care and we're there asking the questions. And so when I first started doing this some time ago, you know, some of the folks had worked with other companies and they just, they just, they vomited all over my shoes because there was a lot of things that needed to get fixed, you know, picking up a new project from another company. But now it's like, it's, 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 it's like crickets. They just don't have a whole lot to say because we spent time listening to and fixing those things. And uh, now it's, it's, it's pretty smooth. That's great. And, and I assume there's a bit of an expectation that, uh, Hey, we're going to review things, you know, and, and if it's the same thing over and over again, that, 
that we're talking about needing to improve, then, you know, then that's going to be very obvious to everyone. Well, part of it is like, we do a lot of surveys. And so we even ask them, hey, we're going to do another survey in two weeks. What are some areas we need to drill down on? And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I put specific, you know, they give us, they give us some specific guidance or, or, or suggestions about some layers of things to drill down into and uh, related to leadership. And so, yeah, we just continually, continually seek the feedback and, uh, you know, nobody gets wounded by it. We're asking for it. We want it and we fix whatever the issue is. And then we move on to the next thing. So this makes me think, and it just occurred to me that, you know, Jess and I have recorded, you know, a dozen podcast episodes together and I now fully expect at the end, as soon as he signs off, for him to say, okay, so what are we going to do better next time? And, uh, you know, or, or you know, and, and I, I certainly think that in the earlier episodes, he would say, okay, so next time I want to do these things differently. What do you think? But I, I'm curious, Jess, how, how deliberate is that process? I mean, you've set that expectation for me so that I'm no longer, you know, it doesn't throw me at all. Like, I know that it's coming, but, but it sounds very, very much like a hot watch kind of uh, process that you have with your podcast guests. You know, I, I feel like, you know, Al has been such a great supporter of our charity Child Rescue year after year volunteers to come out and, and teach some like expert tactical classes to all these business guys who wish they were Jason Bourne like I do, right? And, and there's just like a lot of example setting from Al and, and the other guys from his former unit and, and some of the folks we've had involved with us and, and even from, you know, the intelligence side of the FBI and, and stuff, I guess, who've helped us. And there's like, it's like these guys are such artists at what they do that they're more interested in success than in their own reputation. And it's really inspiring. And then like, because I wish I was more like Al, this is my, this is my chance to emulate him and his buddies. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, this actually is a good segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is ego. So, you know, intellectual humility in, you know, in large part is about separating your ego from the equation when things are, are important. And, you know, it's in order to succeed in an elite military unit or in the highest echelons of business, you're, you, it seems really unlikely for you to not know what your strengths are and to know that you're really good. You know, Michael Jordan knew he was extremely good at basketball. You know, if mm -hmm. he pretended like he wasn't, it would probably be problematic for the team. And yet, I, I think a question is, how do you not let that recognition uh, of your own ego and, and your strengths get in the way of getting the job done in high stakes scenarios? So, Al, I'm curious You've dealt with a lot of people who are extremely good at what they do. How do you make sure in high stakes kinds of jobs that someone's ego doesn't start to get in the way of their need to adapt or to admit they're wrong or to keep developing and climbing once they already know that they are, you know, stronger, a better shot, you know, a smarter business person than most of anyone they're, they're dealing with? Well, there's a very fine line between the necessary confidence required of a team and the members of that team to be able to go out and do something risky or dangerous and having too much ego, you know, too full of yourself, you know, in business, we call it drinking your own bathwater. You know, you just think you're so amazing, but the customer's just not feeling it. Right. And so I think humility, it's all about humility and ultimately understanding that, you know, there's, there's always somebody else out there that's that's working really hard to get better and faster. You know, if you look at how well resourced our military was during Vietnam, for example, and they had uh, a really tough time 
with poorly resourced people who are poorly fed running around in a set of sandals made out of old tires and an AK-47 and maybe one spare mag. And they were just having a hard time with all of the training and resources and equipment and helicopters and everything beating those guys who were out in the woods, just be, just ad- improvising, adapting, and overcoming with very little in the way of resources, but they had the will. They had the will to win. And so there's always somebody out there like that. You know, things like 9-11 humbled a lot of people, you know, and there's a whole lot of mini 9-11s going on out there in, you know, various kinds of places where asymmetric warfare is, it's a small group of people and they are doing something. They're not going to come head to head. They're going to use a drone with some explosives on it. They're going to use social media. You know, they're going to be doing influence operations, cyber attacks. So much is out there going on that's, that's sort of asymmetric. So you can be bad and you can be strong and you can be fast and you can be smart and you can have the best equipment. But somebody's out there trying to get a half a step ahead of you and, and they're always out there. And so those sorts of things, and, and, and you know, you lose people in the military and in business, you, you collapse a business and people, you have to let people go because you have a big downturn. I mean, all those things are humbling and they happen all the time. So there's so much going on that, that just continually humbles you. So that's sort of the, that's the big picture answer. But from a culture perspective, I can remember being on a team in, in, in my special operations unit and they had contract maintenance people that would go around the building, you know, cleaning it up at the end of the day, uh, cleaning crews. But still, we would, at the end of the week, clean all of our weapons and go clean the whole, our, our whole part of the, our team room and our, and our open area and the weapons cleaning area and the, and the latrines and everything and, and clean up the ranges, like all, all the, the, you know, the brass and the targets and all that. So we did a lot of manual labor as special operations guys. The kind of labor that in a normal unit, all the privates were doing that, right? But in a special operations unit, we're all like senior NCOs and we're doing the work that privates would do in other units. And in a lot of cases, I think maybe there were there were probably ways to have other folks doing that. But I think it was part of the culture to help keep people humble to to be doing all that kind of work. And it's kind of like I, I sort of had a, a a similar in this book. I'm reading this book, Legacy, by James Kerr. It's about the South Africa, uh, South Africa. Uh, excuse, is it you know the New Zealand All Blacks? All Blacks, yeah, the rugby team. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things in the book is it's about humility. They're doing their after action review. They're doing their hot wash. They're in their what they call the shed, which is like their team room. And at the end of it, the the meeting breaks up. The coaches leave, and the other players leave. And the two senior players, like the co captains, they get up. And they grab the brooms and they start sweeping the shed. And that's all about the culture of humility and taking care of ourselves. And I just completely thought, and when I read that line in the book, I completely thought right back to, you know, mopping the floors. And and I do the same thing here in the office. You know, I take out trash. I carry boxes. I've vacuumed and swept. And I, I, I don't want anybody to feel like there's any task uh, that's beneath me. And so when they see that, you know, they, they're not, they're not, nobody says, oh, well, that's not in my job description. They're willing to do the same stuff. So, so there's a, I, I love, I think that's such a great actionable example for anyone who's listening to this, who is running a business, right? This idea that just because you're good at what you do doesn't mean that you should be above the rest of people and that you should get special treatment, you know, cleaning up after yourself, doing your part for the team. You know, it, it's like saying that, you know, that the player who's that all-star doesn't have to, you know, have to do any of the the team chores or the practice or, you know, put in time to, 
to be a team player. So I love that. The, the other two things that stick out to me from what you're saying is that, and I think especially with folks who, who know that they're good, who, you know, are at, operating at elite levels, who might have more of a danger of, you know, of the ego getting the best of them. Those types of folks tend to be competitive. And so channeling that competitiveness into, you know, if, if you're competitive and winning is going to mean upgrading your strategy, then you will be more willing to change because that's, that's the game you're now playing. And if, you know, your competitors or the enemy, your rivals, they are upgrading their strategies. And if you just stick to the same thing because that's how you won last time, if you know you'll lose then your sense of competitiveness will drive you to actually change your mind, to rethink the way that you thought, to recognize what got us to this point isn't going to get us to the next point. So I, I love that as a, just from a leadership tactic, if you recognize that your folks that you're working with have that competitive drive to win and that you can use that to help them to recognize the value of adaptation and of, uh, of being humble. That's a really good point, Shane. My, my business partner, Rob Woodfield, he, he talks a lot to our folks about competition, competing, continually improving, maintaining that edge and in uh, everything that you do, you know, not only, you know, their, their, their technical skills, but, uh, you know, our, our own skills uh, in communicating with each other and, and being respectful to each other and being willing to lend a hand when something needs to get done, you know, no matter what it is, you know, we can always be better at those things. And, and he talks a lot about that. And in the competition piece specifically, he, he really pushes that a lot. And I think it's, you know, this, this kind of crowd likes to compete, you know, they, they like to be put under the stopwatch and they like to, to, you know, talk a little trash with each other about, you know, their skills, you know? Yeah. So Al, maybe to kind of wind up part one of the interview here, my question would be, when you think about yourself and, and times that you have recognized, oh, maybe I've gone beyond confident, I've gone beyond confidence and you you want to work on your own humility or you, do you have anything you say to yourself? Are there books you read? Is there like, what have you done to try to either follow the example of, of, you know, quiet professionals that you look up to or just any, what does it look like for you as you've tried to mature this about yourself over the years? I think it's two things. One, one of them is in the wake of some kind of failure. Well, that that's a that, that is a humility generating moment right there. You know, uh, you, you don't do well at something. Everybody around you is crushing some task, and you just stumbled, right? And so you need to get some coaching, and you get tuned back up, and 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 now you're back on your game. So that, that's humbling. Having mentors around who are exactly what I'm trying to become, and trying to pattern my way of being respectful after them and my manner of speaking after them. So can I, can I ask about that actually? Yeah. You know, so many people talk about mentors. I, I feel like, you know, it's completely changed my life to have people to look up to, to follow. But at the same time, it's like really awkward to have somebody call you up and say, will you be my mentor <laughs> sometimes or something like that? Right. So I'm interested, like tactically, like logistically, what has that looked like? Has it just been you trying to make excuses to spend time with somebody that you look up to? Do you buy them lunch? What, what has that looked like for you? You know, it just depends. Like, I mean, in the military, you, you, you spend so much time at work and deployed around people that the, the exposure is there. And so it's just a matter of physically putting yourself more near this guy so you can talk to him and less near that guy that you don't want to be around, you know, proximity. I think a lot of times there in business, Hmm. Man, that's a little bit of everything. There was this one guy 
uh, and I might have talked about him last time we did a podcast, Just His name is Mike Cheney, and he was a generation ahead of me, had done all the same things I had done, uh, but was was now like 10 years ahead of me out in business. And somebody introduced me to him, and I was already thinking about what is my life going to be after the Army. I want to get into business in some way. I, was, I wasn't sure what shape that would take, and, and it was pre-9-11, so this industry really isn't wasn't there the way it is now. And somebody introduced me. And so I said, hey, I would really like to ask you, you know, 20 questions about business, about your transition from being a military guy to being a business guy. He's like, sure, you know, here's my number. Give me a call sometime. And he'd work for some of the big defense contractors. So I call him. And this is like before, you know, before Internet, before the email, before email was a thing. Right. So I would call him and, and play 20 questions, you know, and and I did that like once every six months for about five years before I retired. And he gave me all the advice I needed to prepare in advance and, and to be to understand what business was like and how the culture was different than a military organization and how, you know, people would lie to you and they would screw you. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I didn't understand and because that wasn't the world I was from. And so having him as a mentor was very helpful to me. And it meant so much to me that I still do that for guys now all the time. People I don't even know, somebody refers them to me, some friend, hey, friend of a friend, hey, uh, call Al because he has done some of the things you're thinking about doing. And so I'll get on the phone for two hours with some guy who's thinking about going to get an MBA in his transition out of the military or whatever it happens to be or start a, start a business. And he runs his idea by me and I give him my opinion about it. I love it. Well, let's end off part one here. And I'll just second what Al said, because literally this morning, I called Al and said, hey, my buddy's kid wants to become an Army Ranger. Do you have, I mean, I know you're running a big giant business with tens of millions of dollars and half a family stuff, but can you take some time to to uh, give him some advice on what he should do before he enlists and what to sign and not sign when he gets in? And uh, no hesitation, Al said, of course, and uh, has already texted him back and forth today, I saw. So that's um, incredible. Yeah. So now, to be fair, you said Al's running this big, giant business. Al really isn't running this big, giant business. I'm on a team of people, and and they run the big, giant business, and, and I play a little part in it. <laughs> little. <laughs> My question, the little in that sentence, but I've, I'm sure the rest of it makes sense. Everybody, thanks for listening. Please tune in to part two here. Uh, we'll be back with episode six in the Intellectual Humility miniseries. Thanks, everyone.